Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're speaking to the dream catchers. These are people who went after their dream jobs and got them. Today, I'm extremely excited to be joined by Antonio Negrette. He's a film and TV director, which he's been doing for almost 20 years and is currently living in L.A. Hi, Antonio. Hi, Kimberly. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm absolutely loving having you here. And I know that you just said that you are sequestered in an Airbnb because your entire family has COVID. That's true. Absolutely true. Um, Got back from Atlanta just to discover kids, in-laws, wife, everyone had COVID. And I keep testing negative, but I've been living like some kind of vampire going from a hotel to Airbnb. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you were at least able to join us today. So no family responsibilities. We're not going to have any kids breaking into the middle of the podcast. <laughs> no, no. Someone might come in, but if they do, they're a stranger to me as well. So it'll be exciting. <laughs> it would be just like one of your movies. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up, go to school, and how did you become a film director? Well, I was born in Colombia. My mother's British, father's Colombian, and they were environmentalists. So I had an interesting childhood in that I traveled a lot. Basically, um, every five to six years, we would move around. So I went from Colombia to Brazil, Ecuador, Mexico, Panama, and then I came to L.A. to to study film. But, But before I got there, I kind of knew all along that I wanted to tell stories. I think moving from place to place made me kind of on one sense, in one sense, become a loner in that I would make friends and lose friends. And so I turned with my brother to TV a lot, to film and to collecting anecdotes of kind of every place I went. So by the time I got to middle school and high school, I didn't really know what directing was exactly, but I knew I wanted to be in film. So at the time there was no directing class or anything like that, but I did a lot of theater as a kid and um, I'm glad I did because I think to this day uh, that has helped me communicate with actors really well. So I kind of went into it from that side, but the more I learned and the more I kind of studied on my own what, what film was, the more I realized what I wanted to do was direct. And that all kind of became crystal clear for me when um, in Ecuador, I auditioned for a film. While I was still in school, I auditioned for this uh, local film that was being made. And I got this part, it was like a two day part and um, being kind of naive and, and cocky, I told the director, well, I'll only do this part if you let me hang out after I'm done and kind of watch you work. And um, much to his credit, he took me seriously and, and said yes. His name was Sebastian Cordero and he was a, a pretty big and still is a big and influential director in Latin American film and in Ecuador especially. And so the film was called Ratas, Ratones, Rateros. And I did my two day part and sure enough, I got to hang out afterwards and watch him, you know, for, for several weeks, do what a director does. And um, when I realized, okay, he's like the orchestrator of, of, of the whole thing. He's, he's dealing with actors, he's dealing with the technicians, he's, he's with the camera, he's um, 
thinking about music, he's putting the puzzle together in his head and being really the first person to watch the film come together and kind of guide the film to what it needs to be. When I realized that's what he did and um, saw him do it, I knew that that's what I had to do. So um, from then I, I became very focused in terms of what's the best film school, where can I go? Um, and he had gone to USC in, in LA, which happens to be one of the best, if not the best film schools out there. And, uh, you know, I talked to him and he wrote a letter of recommendation and I applied as well as to other schools, but I got in and, and that's what started my journey. Gosh, there's so much there. I love that story so much. And I, I love the use of the words, the fact that you collected anecdotes as you traveled around. So also being somebody that moved every two years, it's so true. You have these great stories from all your adventures. And I love the fact that you turn to kind of film and TV to almost find those friendships that, you know, you do, you lose friendships quite quickly when you move so often. And, and there's a consistency in them because they go with you from place to place and you can bring those along with you. And I love the idea of being a storyteller and kind of orchestrating the, orchestrating the entire story and guiding it along. It's such a beautiful depiction of, of what you do as a director. And <laughs> one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is um, mentors. So the very first season's all about mentors. And it sounds like Sebastian was exactly that for you, is that he was your mentor and he was somebody that helped to guide you into what you ended up doing. And, and I just want to pick up on the point that you went back to him, you found out how he got into what he did, and then you had him write you a letter of recommendation to get you into the school and to kind of back you up and send you on that journey. And I love that use of your network and of your mentor to get you where you wanted to go. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, for me, ever since I was six years old, I knew I wanted to be in film and TV, but I didn't really understand specifically what directing was but you know I can't I can't remember wanting to do anything else I think at one point I wanted to be a taxi driver or a scuba diver but in terms of you know jobs I the only thing I ever wanted to do was be in film and and so at one point it was stunts at one point it was acting at one point it was like you know do I want to write I, I don't know and then when it, it all came together through my mentor through Sebastian um, was when I really understood, okay, now I know exactly what I want to do within what I've always wanted to do, if that makes sense. I think it's incredible. And that so often you, you had it happen early, but it's so often on your career, you kind of take this career journey and at some point something happens you didn't even know existed. So for me, it was executive coaching. I didn't even know that was a profession. And I went and got trained up on leadership and executive coaching. And that for me was like, boom, I found it kind of put all my puzzle pieces together. And again, it allowed me to recognize I love helping people. I really like guiding people. I really like being able to share other people's successes. And it kind of put all that together. And uh, it's, it's amazing that it happened to you so young. And I guess the question is, so you said stunts, acting, writing. You're in, you're, you're now a director. Is there anything that still kind of pulls at you from that? Or are you like set in the directing and, and that's where you want to continue? Well, I certainly think it feeds into it. So a lot of the directing I do is action. I've kind of been lucky enough to, to find, you know, success in that space. So I get called a lot 
for action projects, whether they're films or or TV episodes. And so that ties into stunts and in that I've worked a lot with all kinds of, of different, you know, stunt performers and, and stunt coordinators. And another mentor of mine has been Pierre Morel, who directed Taken and um, is, you know, a huge action director. And so I've learned a lot about action. So I'm still directing, but one of my strengths is action. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's tying in with the love of, of stunts. And uh, the other strength I would say is working with actors. I think that's possibly my favorite part of the whole process because um, if the performance isn't there, then nothing else really matters. And so working with actors and kind of protecting them or pushing them or kind of feeding off their energy and giving them energy when, when things are low uh, is what I love. And, and that comes from the acting. I think a lot of the acting I did gave me a tremendous respect for what actors do. And even though I realized I'd rather be behind the camera, uh, I absolutely love stepping across and talking to the actors between takes and helping them kind of get the best performance possible. So yeah, to answer your question, I think different parts of film directing pull at me in different ways. And I think the parts that I've always loved and dabbled in are kind of the ones that I'm now strong at. And I think that's bad because it's bringing kind of those passions together again. So you pulled the passions together and then you're able to pull them together again in what you're doing and you're able to find your niche because that's another thing that often people do is they say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a director, but actually it's a big pool. And so this is actually my next question for you is, so you graduate from USC, you have pretty good mentors. So you've got somebody that's quite big in Latin America. Um, you said Pierre was another one of your mentors taken by the way, fabulous film, loved that film, <laughs> scared the pants out of me, but absolutely loved it. <laughs> so what, what happens then when you graduate from USC? Well, it was a little bit of a shock, to be honest, because unlike some other professions or, or like, say, going to law school, you don't really graduate from film school to find headhunters waiting for you or find people kind of willing and, and ready to just hand you a, a film, you know, and I think I left school thinking, OK, I'm done now. I'm ready to start directing. And it was this kind of um vacuum and silence you know and, and not just for me but for my whole class and and I so I had to quickly realize oh, okay I've got the training that I wanted and I feel I have a tremendous network of of friends that I went to school with that all want to do what I do and or, or elements of you know the industry that I work in and um and now I just have to make something and so you know different people take different paths and I think that to directing, there's many ways to get there. I've seen people work for a producer and kind of get get on set and get more familiar with, with filmmaking and then kind of pivot to, to direct. Or I've seen people work through the studio and they become kind of assistants and then executives and then, but, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the fastest way to directing was to just direct. And so you kind of have to, put this flag in the ground and say, I'm a director and just start making stuff. So, so for me, I never tried really to go into another job. I, I kind of, I did my thesis short film at USC 
And I had met America Ferreira while studying at USC and we became friends and she acted in, in my short film. And it was a very personal kind of story. It was an action film. It was a fictional story, but it was inspired on a kidnapping. And, and growing up, I had had some family members that were, that were kidnapped in Colombia. And I had an uncle that was murdered. And again, my family wasn't rich or in politics or anything like that. It was like a middle-class family. And so this film was kind of the last minutes in, in a hostage situation gone wrong. And it was really about the feeling of a family um, not being able to, to save a loved one. And so I graduated from school. I had this short and my choice was either start trying to get a job or try to make this short into a feature. And that was kind of the path that I decided to take and, and just kind of go all in and try to make this into into a film and and you know i did do a little bit of work because the short was sold to a uh, a small television network called ctv and they were showing the short and they needed someone to direct some kind of sketches in between short films so they hired me to do that and while i was doing that i was writing the feature and started trying to raise money to do the feature and off of that I just went and did my first film without any kind of real contacts or or knowledge of the industry or anything I just kind of said this is what I want to do and, and kind of gambled I guess and went out and did it but you wrote it yourself you wrote the whole film yeah yeah okay so there I was going to ask where the writing comes in so the first feature film you do you've written you directed you self-funded, but you got raised funding for it. So how how does one who has nothing behind them raise money? How do you actually go out and do that? Well, um, good question. It was a mixture, I think, of kind of persistence and luck in that um, this was before crowdfunding existed, yes. but it was essentially a type of crowd funding in that I basically, you know, um, with with the producers who one was a friend from film school and the other is now my wife um <laughs> we we put a budget together and realized we needed five hundred thousand dollars to make this film which for a film is is not a lot of money it's cheap for a film it's a lot of money for everyone else on the exactly. planet <laughs> for everyone else and for me it was like how are we ever gonna raise this money you know all i have is this short film um and so I'd started with family and friends, you know, and just the mortifying experience of having to go to your loved ones and say, hey, this is my dream and I know I can do it. And will you give me money to do it? <laughs> and, um, you know, to their credit, I was able to to raise the first hundred thousand that way. It, wow. was, it was really um my loved ones and friends that that knew and that had known all along you know parents as well you know that had known all along and kind of pooling all of them together i was able to get a hundred thousand but i was still like okay where am i going to get the other four hundred thousand dollars and um it was the short it was the short film that hadn't gotten into any major festivals but had gone to a lot of little festivals that I loved kind of going to and being a part of. And one of them was in this tiny town called Orinda near San Francisco. And one of the producers, Craig, was from there. And he said, listen, there's a lot of people there 
that have kind of Silicon Valley money and I'm from there. Why don't we go back there and ask them if they'll invest in a, in a feature version of, of the short? And I said, sure, whatever, this will never work. But yes, I'm desperate, let's go. And so we went and sure enough, I had stayed in this small town for this festival. I had stayed with a family. The festival doesn't even exist anymore, by the way. It was so small. And sure enough, these families remembered the film, remembered me. And basically, it was like 10, 12 families came together and, and gave us the rest of the money to make the film. And, Dang, this uh, is some good families to know right there. I, I know. I mean, <laughs> and, and so I would have never guessed that we could have raised it from there. But at the same time, we were trying everything and, mm. and so you know it was that combination of just kind of knocking on doors and then finding the right town and the right doors and and that got the money to make my first film what i think is really interesting in so many people's stories that are on the dream catchers is that kind of tenacity and i would say desperation that there's a point where we've got to make this work or it's not going to happen and when you get to that place, I think the people that are the dream catchers, this is kind of my, my current hypothesis, <laughs> the dream catchers are the ones that push through and follow it. And they say, I'm desperate. How in the heck are we ever going to raise 400,000 more dollars? And they push through and they go for it as opposed to being like, great, we've got hundred K we're never going to get the rest of this. I'm folding up the towel. It's been fabulous. We're out. I'm going to go be a lawyer. Right. No, it's true. I think you're right in that, you know, you, if you have a safety net, um, chances are you'll fall into that safety net. And so along the way, there are several times where I've had to tell myself, like, there can't be a safety net, because if there is, I can see it. And that's where I'm going to land. And, and if you know, there isn't, then you're not going to stop until you either survive or, or, or die trying, you know? And so, um, yeah, it was in moments like that where I said, no, I'm not gonna try to get a different job and, and work my way up the ranks or I'm not gonna, you know, um, find something else as a backup. I'm just gonna try and, and do it and, and know that I have to do it. And it's terrifying. I mean, it's easy to say now, but of course, when you're in it, um, there's moments where you're like, this is a terrible idea. What am I going to do? Um, but you just have to push through. Like you said, I think you have to keep pushing and just not take no for an answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm really hoping that you don't use that adage about the safety nets with your stunt people, right? You just be like, we're not having any safety nets because you're <laughs> no, here to do no, that, that, has to be, that has to be the opposite. That has yeah. to be <laughs> lots of safety nets, lots of safety nets. And um, yeah. Yeah, that that's safety is a is a must. Absolutely. Once safety you're there and you're making it, then it's also your job to to protect everyone, you know, and yeah. and uh, I take that super seriously. Yes, yes, absolutely. So safety, <laughs> safety nets for stunts, but not for when you're making big decisions. And I think yes. I, I think it's unbelievably profound because when you do have that backup plan, you do have that other job you could do. It is so easy just to say this, this, we got to, we got to call it quits and, and just cut it off and go and do that safe job. And a lot of times what you find is people in these safe jobs, they've made a career for themselves. They're good at it, but they have that longing in their heart 
to still go back and do whatever it was that was their dream that they gave up at that one point when it got too hard at that pinch point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not to, you know, disrespect that option or that choice. Even I sometimes will do like an episode now where my heart isn't a hundred percent in it, but then I tell myself, okay, if I'm going to do this episode, then I need to use some of that money or I need to use some of that um, experience to do something that really means something to me. And that's a kind of a different stage I'm in now in terms of balancing. Yes, you're taking jobs and you're keeping the train moving, but you can't ever just take a job for a job. It has to, you have to A, B, put your heart in it, but then B, use that to then get even closer to your dream or move your dream in, in another direction, you know? So I think um, to all those that are out there currently in another job and want to do their dream job, you absolutely still can. And you just have to use a part of what you're doing and say, okay, this part is no matter what going toward my, uh, my dream and I'm going to use it um, to get there. And what would you say your dream is now? So, you know, we're calling you the dream catcher because you've gotten to do this, but what's your dream now? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I'll say I'm super flattered to be called a dream catcher. Um, I feel that I am absolutely doing what I've always wanted to do. And I'm so grateful for that. But I don't feel like, to be honest, I've fully caught my dream and that I think I'm still in the chase and every day pursuing it. Um, but my dream, I think my dream is to, to tell stories that resonate well beyond the time when I'm gone, meaning I just want to leave some kind of mark that's entertaining, but also that, that affects people. And so have I achieved that dream? Yes, in some ways, but have I fully achieved it? I don't think so. I think there's still a lot more I can do and a lot more stories I want to tell. And so I feel very much like I'm still chasing that dream if that makes sense. No, definitely. And what was the name of your film, by the way, that you ended up making? And did America do the full feature film for you? Uh, yes, she did. And uh, the film is called Towards Darkness, Hacia la Oscuridad in Spanish. It was a bilingual film. And again, a tiny film. Obviously, I've gone on to do much bigger films. And even the episodes I do, um, you know, are, are you know, two, three, four times the budget of, of that film. And so I've gone on to do much bigger things, but to this day, I think that's the most personal one because it was really from nothing and, and with very little industry help. You know, no one in the industry helped me do it. Obviously lots of people helped me make the film, but none of them were established necessarily um, filmmakers or studios or, or companies. And, and that film, went to Tribeca Film Festival and um, we sold it. We sold it to MGM and HBO and I got my agents off of that film. And then I really started working in the industry, quote unquote, you know, for real. And so it really was that film that, that opened the doors for me. And getting an agent, that's something that is, you know, for people that are not in the industry at all, like, you know, you hear all the time, oh, agent, agent, agent. And so it sounds like it's kind of this thing that anybody that does anything 
around Hollywood has or people that write books or whatever have, but getting an agent's not easy. It's almost like an audition in itself, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And a lot of people sometimes ask me like, well, how can I get an agent or what's the best way to get an agent? And honestly, the answer I think is um, you have to let them come to you. It's kind of, if you set out to find an agent in my mind, that goal is it's a harder goal to achieve than if you set out to make something that's important to you or to make a film or a commercial or a short film or a TV episode. I think if you do that, then the agents will come. It's better to have them chase you than for you to be constantly looking for an agent. But of course it's, you know, it's a chicken and the egg situation. You, you wanna, it's hard to get something made, but you need something made to get hired to make something again, or to get hired, um, or to get noticed, sorry, by, by someone to represent you. So to me, with directing, the answer always was just direct. And mm-hmm. if I can direct w- with whatever I can, then the pieces will, will come and help me get to the next directing job. And so my agents came to me and I had, and I've changed agents, you know, in the years, in the many years I've been doing this. So, um, you know, they, I met with lots of different agents off of the film festival, chose a group, worked with them. Some of them retired, some of them went on to do other things. I then, you know, found other agents and, and, uh, or they found me again. It's that kind of, I think if you just keep doing what you want to do or what you after, those pieces will come around and help you. And I find that really interesting as well, like here in the UK, especially is the people. So you think about Harry Potter and you think about the kids that were cast in Harry Potter. And a lot of them were in different types of drama school. A lot of them were doing, you know, they were doing drama. They were doing what they love to do and they were discovered there as opposed to being in cold calls where they just went out and auditioned. Some of them did, but you know, it's, it's, again, you have both ways. So you can, you can chase the agents or the agents can chase you because you're putting content out there. And the same thing with, if you're out there acting, you know, people will see you, they'll discover you and you'll, you're more likely to get discovered if you're actually doing the art, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's not to say, you know, you, you shouldn't be aware of, of agents around you. So if you do a film, and you can invite agents to watch it, absolutely do that. Or if you know of a certain event where there will be agents that you can mingle with, absolutely do that. And I'm not saying sit in a quiet room and, and <laughs> hope for them to knock on the door, but, but you spend so much energy every day that you might as well expend it on your dream. And instead of putting all your energy into finding an agent, put all your energy into writing a book or you know, making a film and, and then try to get it in front of agents eyes, but, but put your energy in the, in what they'll be seeing, not in finding it. I like that. And let's talk about sacrifices. So, you know, one of the things you talked about was having to raise this money. What are some other sacrifices that you've had to make along the way in terms of following this dream, following this career? Um, I think you have to be prepared for ups and downs, certainly in in film. You know, now I do a lot of TV and that's certainly more stable, but independent film where I started is very up and down. When it's good, it's great. And when it's bad, you're just kind of like, am I ever gonna work again, you know? And so I think in terms of sacrifice, definitely 
stability, you know, for a long time um, starting out, I, I didn't know when I would have time off. I couldn't plan family vacations because people would go, well, what about, you know, July? And I would say, I don't know. I've got this film I'm trying to make, but I don't know if it's going to go, I, you know? And so there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of um, ups and downs, a lot of kind of lack of stability, all things which I was able to, to now kind of overcome. But, but in the moment, it, it's a little bit harrowing because you, you look at other people that have a nine to five job and you're like, oh, wow, that, that's, it's very clear. They'll go to work and then they'll come home and they'll get their paycheck on this day. And it, 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 there's a comfort there. And I think I had to sacrifice comfort, if that makes sense. Um, and now the flip side of that coin is I'm doing a lot of TV episodes so I can be booked out, you know, six months in advance. But the other sacrifice now is I'll be gone for three weeks. I'll be in Vancouver or Atlanta or New York, you know, and, and then I come home um, and then I'm home and I'm with my kids, with my wife. And I'm like basically at home, you know, not working, but then I have to leave again. And so the sacrifice there becomes long periods of time without your family or, or time where they all kind of go, okay, daddy's leaving again, you know, and, mm. and that's hard too. That's, you know, another side of not having a nine to five job is, um, you know, you, you can't always predict when you'll be home or for how long. And is your wife still producing? Yeah, she is. She is. We actually have a project together that we're working on. So that's nice, tough in its own way, but nice as well. Um, but, but, you know, the, when our, when our son was born, Gabriel, um, she stayed, she stayed home for a while. So mm. she's now, you know, consulting and producing a few things, but, um, she's been at home the last few years, much more than I have, which yeah, is also a sacrifice for her, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's all it's, it's, it's really interesting that you, you just kind of hit on something that's really important is recognizing that a lot of these kind of these dream jobs that one gets yourself into if you're on stage it's also weekends and evenings you know that you're gone you're you're not in the house so if you're married to somebody who does a nine-to-five job they're gone all day and you're gone all night and then you don't see each other on the weekends and so yeah. you kind of need to see kind of what this looks like in front of you and i think i think jumping into those those big dream pools it's just recognizing what that actually looks like because i think a lot of times you almost have this view of what it looks like on Instagram almost, which is like, oh, cool. You're, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're living the dream. You're up in Vancouver, you know, you're over in Seattle, you're doing this, doing that. But actually every single moment that you're there, you're not with your family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit, you know, a really interesting point that, yeah, even the dream job, uh, is never always a dream, meaning like, yes, I, I, I get to direct film and TV. I've traveled all over the world. I've, you've worked with famous actors and been to premieres and kind of lived the Hollywood dream on one side. But then that dream also means, you know, standing 14 hours in the rain, uh, you know, from, you know, from, from 6 p.m. To, to 8 a.m. the next morning. Um, you know, and, and you're miserable and you're shaking and you're, you know, kind of pushing 
your body and 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 your mind just trying to get the day done and you look around and you go okay this is not what people think of when when they think director you know and mm -hmm. and it can be like going into battle sometimes it can be really extreme and really tiring and um not this kind of cushy job where you sit on a chair and call action a lot of times <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's pretty extreme as well and i imagine if you're doing lots of stunts quite a few of those have to be outdoors as well so you probably spend a bit more time outdoors yeah, <laughs> than some others yeah absolutely. I had um I did a commercial when we were in you know, when I was living up in New York and I remember the call was for 3 a.m. It was 3 a.m. to rock up. That's when we, that's when we started shooting and it was like all righty then. Yeah, I mean that's very common. They're trying yep. now, especially in TV, to kind of manage that because also you have what are called Fridays where you know technically you don't work on the weekend but you're you start filming on friday afternoon and you're not done till saturday morning and then you get home and you sleep all day sure. and you wake up and your saturday's gone so even though you had the weekend off you you're so spent you really can't enjoy it with your family or or even with yourself there's not you don't have the energy to to get anything done you're just kind of recovering so um yeah it can be it can be certainly taxing in that sense yeah and just to be clear in the corporate world it's also exactly the same i like that yeah. um phrase fraterday we need to actually get that into our vocabulary because it is you pull an all-nighter closing a deal and you're spent and you're you're no good to anybody and you know we we may disappear for a few weeks but we're in the office as opposed to in some glamorous location in the rain for 12 hours but you know i mean it's it, it it's there there are some similarities there but it's just, again that same thing is what are you sacrificing for your job and are you happy with that balance are you happy with that sacrifice and i think that's you know that's the kind of thing each one of us have to be able to recognize stare in the face and make a decision for ourselves absolutely yeah absolutely. well this has been absolutely incredibly interesting. I have loved having you on the show. Um, sadly, we're getting really close to time. So I have to ask you our two final questions. So the podcast is called The Undiscovered You. So my question is, on this whole journey to becoming a director and kind of fulfilling the dream in one sense, but still having more you want to do, what have you discovered about yourself along the way? Um, I think I've discovered that two things one i'm stronger than i thought i was you know i've i've done you know four films now and like over 43 episodes and i can't tell you how many times i thought well this will be my last one or something falls apart you know i had a film um, with ana de armas that i got to make and 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 um and for a long time, I thought I'd never make it. The film fell apart and we didn't get to make it until four years later. And in those four years, there were moments where I was like, I had it, I had it. I was living in Paris. It, that was the one Pierre produced. I was like, it's a dream. I, I did it. And then I got sent home, you know, and I thought, okay, it's how do I pick up the pieces? And I did, I got into TV and then four years later, I went back and did that film. And so what, what I learned about myself is there are many times where I thought it was over and, and then I realized, no, I'm still here, I'm still pushing. And so I feel that um, I'm stronger than I thought I was. And I think everyone is, everyone is. So, you know, when you have those moments, um, know that it's never really over until it's over. 
And I think uh, the other the other thing I've learned about myself is to is to trust my instincts. In all the experiences I've had and different shows, whether it's like Chilling Adventures of Sabrina or Arrow or Hawaii Five O or Magnum PI, you know, there I've learned very different things from different shows. But I keep going back to, you know a lot of that was instinctual with my first film where I didn't work with anyone like that and didn't have um, those people around me. I still made a lot of similar choices. So more, the more I do it, the more I realize, okay, I got to trust my instincts. And now I'm actually uh, getting ready to do a film back in Colombia and kind of return to some of the roots that I, that I started with because I realized um, that's, that's what I want to keep doing. So even with all that experience, I go back a lot to what got me started and, and I, I'm trusting that more, um, nowadays. So those two things, uh, I've learned along the way. So trusting instincts, don't let go of the roots and you're stronger than you think. Yes. I love it. And, uh, what is your best piece of advice? So for our listeners, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received, heard, heard shouted out you as you're driving away. <laughs> That's a tough one. I mean, I really don't think there's any like fortune cookie phrase that I've heard that has like changed, you know, my life or, or has been a guiding principle. There's a word that I use a lot, which is pancakes. <laughs> and I can explain that that kind of, in a way was advice that came from both an editor and my wife. And it was early on when I was directing a superhero show and in the script, you know, there was a ton of things I had to cover. And it was one of those nights where we're out of time and the producers are on set and everyone's like, what the hell happened? You know, you're two hours behind. It was one of those situations, high pressure situations. And we got the pieces and I went home and I looked at the script and there was this, I don't honestly even remember the details, but it was, um, a character was making a certain kind of pancake. Um, and then later on the hero recognizes him because he, he sees these pancakes. It sounds absurd right now. Um, but I was like, I didn't get, I didn't get that vital piece of information. It's over. I'm never going to be hired again. And later I remember, you know, talking to my wife and she's like, pancakes, like <laughs> pancakes. That sounds ridiculous. And of course, with the editor later, he's like, nobody cares about these pancakes. Like we recognize the guy because, you know, we've seen him. And even though it was in the script, it wasn't crucial. And mm. I think how I see that as advice is if you can recognize what's crucial and what is pancakes, then you're, you're halfway there in the sense that that's the key to really being strong at what you do. Because if you worry about every single thing, it's gonna overwhelm you. But if you can identify, this is what I'm gonna fight for, and I don't care who stands in my way, I'm gonna tell them this is what we need. And this, this is pancakes, let go of it. Don't get it, forget it, or do what they tell you in that moment because it's pancakes. And you know that that's not gonna affect what you're trying to achieve. And, and I think if you can differentiate that, then, uh, It'll help you along the way. I love that. And I think there's so many times in life, aren't there, where you do, you have those pancakes moments where you're like, oh my goodness, I screwed up so badly. I'm definitely going to get fired. 
I can't believe I didn't blah, blah, blah. Or I can't believe I CC'd that person or I can't believe right. I whatever. And you're completely berating yourself and you think it is the end. You're convinced you're yeah. no longer going. Like You're going to have to move. You're going to have to get out of London and move somewhere else. <laughs> Leave LA completely. And then it is. It's just pancakes. Absolutely. Antonio, <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, and thank you so much again for joining us today. And I hope your family gets better soon. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. Um, I love what you're doing and uh, I'm so happy to be a part of it. A huge thank you to Antonio for being on the show. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next week when I speak to Dr. Maureen Murchie, a professional violin and viola player about being a dream catcher. If you're looking for an executive coach or you want to get in touch, check out my website at kljconsulting.co.uk. Or you can email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the Undiscovered You. Mm-hmm.